Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that hates the idea of the model minority. Today we have Bianca, Zoe, Julia, and Kellen. Today we wanted to talk about a topic that I've been invested in for a long time because of basically like who I am, and that is being Asian American. And this episode was spurred by a couple of recent events for me. Lunar New Year was two weeks ago. And around the same time, there was a lot of uh, like mainstream media attention, more than usual, I guess, devoted to the attacks on Asian people, predominantly East and Southeast Asian people in the U.S., and the myriad responses that that provoked. And I also wanted to do this episode because in response to these attacks, I've been seeing a lot of like mainstream activism and education by Asian people that seems to focus exclusively on Asian American oppression within the past like 20 years without focusing on the relationship that that has to anti-Blackness, to white supremacy and to historical events like beyond the very recent past. And so I hoped on this episode to sort of broaden the scope of that discussion a little bit. Um, So on this episode, we're going to be talking about what provoked these attacks, both in terms of like proximate cause and also what happened in a broader historical context and how that relates to racism, colorism and anti-blackness that is perpetuated and not just by white people, but also by Asian people and how all of that fits into an abolitionist framework. And we're joined today by a lovely guest, Janet Tran. Uh, Janet, I know you have a, uh, you know, a lot of the other co-hosts already, but this is our first time meeting face to face. So Nice to meet you and welcome to Season of the Bitch. Um, Did you want to introduce yourself and maybe talk about what you hope to discuss today and like how your own life and experiences fit into that? Sure. Um, Thanks for having me on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. It's also something that is personal um, subject matter for me. I'm a second generation Vietnamese American. Um, I'm an engineer and artist and ultimately I became politically radicalized as a consequence of my lived experiences, you know, um, and struggles confronting my identity within the context of family, school, workplace, and society at large. Um, My family immigrated to Philly in the 90s, which is really not that long ago. Um, And we were living in a house with like 12 people with my family, my grandparents, my parents, my sister, aunts, and uncles. And it wasn't until the second grade that I moved to the suburbs for a better education. Thanks, neoliberals, for defunding our Philly public school system. (laughs) Um, So um, in experiencing a lot of the racism that I came to face, it was, which I'll share in more detail later on, but it was especially difficult to navigate because of um, the linguistic barriers that were that I had between my parents and I um, me like my main language that I speak is English and them speaking Vietnamese we didn't really have those more nuanced conversations about you know racial um, mm-hmm. oppression and experiences and so that was difficult for me to navigate and I did a lot of it on my own and you know as um shared among a lot of immigrant families, you know, um, parents are oftentimes working long hours for little pay. So it was difficult for them to be politically engaged. But um, so in navigating some of these, these um, things on my own, I art was always like a tool that um, gave space for me to kind of wrestle with these experiences, conceptualize it, and ultimately, like move past it. And, um, 
today just want to share some of those experiences in hopes of um, exposing these narratives that I think on the mainstream, we discuss um, racial oppression in very black and white terms. And so um, I just want to like shed light to these invisible narratives. And, and I think as for oppressed people, we find um, strength in sharing our stories and feeling heard. So um, I'm looking forward to talking more on it. Amazing. Hey, thanks for being here. Yeah. Yeah. For full journalistic integrity, um, as fate would have it, the suburb that Janet's parents moved to for public school reasons is the same Philly suburb that my parents moved to for public school reasons. Um, so yeah, I've known Janet since Funny we were, how that works. <laughs> since we were teens. Um, and yeah, very happy to have her here. She had like maybe a couple months ago, I feel like brought up a very similar topic being like, I want a podcast about this. And I was like, yes i'm like moving right now let's circle back to it and then bianca brought up like this very similar episode and i was like mm. amazing perfect yay well so, i'm yeah, glad so that <laughs> everything came in together um yeah i feel like a little, i resonate a lot with what you just said janet with like i mean i grew up speaking mandarin but as i spent more time in english speaking schools i like felt more comfortable speaking english over time and like because my parents were also working and they weren't really like as informed about like the political landscape in the US, it was really hard to have, I guess, like politically engaged conversations with them because I was growing up. So I was like missing a lot of the picture and they were missing some of the picture. And it was just hard to, I guess, form a political education within the family. So I did have yeah. to do a lot of it on my own as well. I guess we want to start off by giving some historical context, uh, basically like tracing patterns of immigration by Asian people to the U.S. and how that affects their portrayal in the media and how they're seen by large swaths of the U.S. population today. So in a lot of like American um, and Western texts about historic history and geography, there's often this, I don't know, kind of arbitrary like West-East divide. And one of the more prominent scholars who's written a lot about this is Edward Said. And he uh, talks about the harm that comes from creating this like very strong and heavily demarcated divide, most notably in his book, Orientalism. Um, I think there's some like obsolescence to that term Orientalism now. And I think the term like Oriental kind of has like pejorative connotations, but I think the definition that he uses here provides a useful framework. So I'm gonna use the terms that he uses in the book, but he defines Orientalism as quote, the corporate institution for dealing with the Orient, dealing with it by making statements about it, authorizing views of it, describing it by teaching it, settling it and ruling over it. In short, Orientalism is a Western style for dominating, restructuring and having authority over the Orient. So basically European and American colonizers formed narratives about what quote unquote the East was like in order to subjugate the people there and colonize their land and exploit their labor. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, as far as our education system, how we um, portray the East and like the Orient literally means to the East. So mm -hmm. it's like very Eurocentric in nature, that that term in general, and which is why it's seen as a pejorative term, but seeing as the Orient as this, these people who need to be civilized, like, for instance, um, the French were considered this protectorate of Indochina, like they were the civilizers, they were there to modernize society. And the way that's how we're taught in our Western education about um, Southeast Asia and 
For example, when we learn about the Vietnam War, it's strictly on the premise of fighting communism. Mm -hmm. And it completely omits the rights, what the Vietnamese people were fighting for, which was ultimately self-determination. And um, as far as the historical context of the Vietnam War, um, Vietnam was colonialized by the French for 100 years. And then it wasn't until World War II when French, the French were kind of occupied were being depleted of their um, manpower fighting World War II that they were struggling to have control over their colony. And then they turned it over to the United States for, and there was two decades of U.S. occupation and the Vietnamese people were fighting this war mostly for um, self-determination and fighting against the imperialists and regime of the past. And So that's kind of really left out of our education system when we learn about the Vietnam War. And I think Hollywood is, you know, partially to blame. And we know like Hollywood has roots with Mm anti-communism and and um, and blacklisting people who were sympathizers with um, the socialist cause and just kind of side note, kind of more related to contemporary today, like the movie Judas and the Black Messiah just came out. um, And I thought that was an interesting movie that completely shows how Hollywood whitewashes and um, sanitizes the um, story of revolutionaries. And they don't mention the word communist once. And they also showed no... um, didn't re- omitted the solidarity between the Black Panthers and the South Vietnamese People's Liberation Arm um, Front, which was happening in tandem with each other, and we're building solidarity um, cross racial boundaries. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to talk a little bit more about like the narratives about Asian people that white people created to serve their mm-hmm. own interests. Um, so in her book, Alien Capitalism, the professor Eco Day writes, quote, beginning in the 19th century, the spread of whiteness in nations bordering the Pacific was a transnational form of racial identification that was at once global in its power and personal in its meaning, the basis of geopolitical alliance and a subjective sense of self. It was against the backdrop of indigenous dispossession and the quote unquote problem of Asian migration that settler colonial expansion could be justified through ideologies of liberal democracy. Basically like white man's burden kind of like colonial mindsets. Um, And so then like moving on to like immigration patterns by Asian people to the U.S., like with respect to Chinese people specifically, around the 1850s, the U.S. experienced an influx of Chinese immigration. Is there a dog barking or am I like... imagining it those were reaffirming barks you know he was really vibing with what you were saying cricket (laughs) okay um so in the u.s with respect to chinese people specifically around the 1850s the u.s experienced an influx of chinese immigration and competition for labor and wages between white americans and these new immigrants uh That was basically what drove stereotyping of Chinese people as inherently less civilized, as quote-unquote yellow, slant-eyed, pigtailed, and their habits were filthy. And these stereotypes were like believed to be immutable traits associated with being Chinese and were later weaponized and used as leverage to systemically exclude Chinese immigrants from accessing the housing and labor markets while simultaneously forcing them to do the kind of labor that even working-class white people were not deigned to do. 
And then later on, those same stereotypes were transferred to Japanese people when they began immigrating to the U.S. seeking out labor opportunities. Yeah, this was um, a huge problem, especially on like the American West Coast and also um, as well in New York City. And I wanted to just like plug a little book. Um, It's not a little book. I wanted to do a little plug for a book. Um, Nayan Shah (laughs) is a historian who's written a book called Contagious Divides that looks at the racialization of Chinese immigrants in San Francisco from the late 19th to the early 20th century um, from the lens of public health, which people should definitely check out if they're interested in the subject we're talking about today. So I just wanted to quote Shah on like literally page one of this book. He says, white officials define Chinatown as the material manifestation of the alien within the modern American city, emphasizing Chinese difference from, deviance from, and danger to white society in the American nation. They conceived of Chinatown as the preeminent site of urban sickness, vice, crime, poverty, and depravity. Um, And I just wanted to say, like, I'm teaching a class called Social History of American Public Health this semester, and we read Contagious Divides for this class. And the thing that basically all of my students wanted to talk about in class that week was just how relevant this story is to Mm -hmm. COVID-19 and anti-Chinese and and broader anti-Asian prejudice that we've seen today in America. Yeah, I I think that as far as how the conversation of um, Asian culture um, is represented, especially as COVID-19 has um, has been portrayed in the media is, you know, this virus started because, and it's associated with how we portray food culture, Asian food culture, you know, um, as Asians, like eating food that is seen as savage or seen as Mm -hmm. um, uncleanly. And a lot of that is very potent within like common day culture and so that has like really heightened with COVID-19 and like the focus on these wet markets and saying you know this disease broke out because of the way that you know Chinese people were how they you know conduct their uh, food culture and then I also wanted to talk about um, like also the medical practices like as far as like health because medical practices and health go hand in hand and one of the ways in which, uh, you know, Western dominating um, medical practices as far sees what Eastern medicine as um, illegitimate. Um, And as far as like portrayal of medical practices, uh, for instance, in the 2012 um, Summer Olympics that was happening. um, And when, uh, who's that swimmer guy, the super tall guy? Michael Phelps. Michael yeah, Phelps. Michael Phelps. That guy. That guy. <laughs> the only swimmer anyone knows. Yeah, yeah. I, was like, I hope it's Michael <laughs> Phelps because otherwise I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that dude. So he had like cupping done to him. And I remember in 2012 when the Olympics was being covered, um, you know, it drew a lot of attention to yeah. cupping, which is an ancient Chinese practice that, you know, aside from outside of China, you know, it like was an Eastern Asian, Southeast Asian uh, medical practice. And like, I remember like reading on NBC Instagram, they like had taken a picture of his cupping and was like, ew, you know, like literally said, ew. And it's just this like portrayal of Asian people being savage and it's not based in science. And so that's kind of builds off of this, this otherness and this um, delegitimization of um, Asian culture and practices as, as it relates to health 
and um yeah that's also interesting because i remember like i was going to an acupuncturist at that time and like she told me that after that a bunch of people started coming in like specifically asking for cupping and so it's like right like once like michael phelps this like rich white man is like seen on tv international tv getting cupping done people are like oh now that must be like a like legitimate practice or whatever yeah 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 i also wanted to talk about the ways that like cold war era propaganda and McCarthyism increased suspicion towards china which like still has a legacy to this day in terms of like how the media represents chinese like issues basically uh what did i want to say oh yeah just like a suspicion about communism in general that i think has like permeated the way that they think about quote-unquote american like liberal democracy versus like chinese or like formerly communist countries supposed authoritarianism um i think that's where a lot of headlines like oh like china and vietnam curbed covid but was it a human rights violation for them to impose restrictions like this and it's like well like i don't know like i also count the millions of people who have died in the u.s as a human rights violation but like it's just different i I think the different media portrayals are like actually quite harmful um i think one specific example of this was in the new york times there was a story that they reported about two who researchers thea k fisher and peter dasak who went to china to meet with epidemiologists there to study the effects of covid and the resulting new york times article that got published included things like quote uh, china's continued resistance to revealing information about the early days of the coronavirus outbreak end quote which was so misrepresented that both of the researchers had to take to Twitter to tweet out that that was not their experience in China. They both were on Twitter like, um, the New York Times article took our quotes out of context. They misrepresented us. We worked with researchers who were very forthright and they formed really good relationships with us. And so like, I think the media also plays a role in like increased suspicion towards China and other Asian countries just in terms of how they portray them. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that has largely to do with this American in particular construction of the model minority and it being used as a tool to delegitimize these other um, governments, um, be it China or Vietnam, etc. And it really like met the requirements of Cold War containment. It was it was embracing this um, Americanization and assimilation, which I would argue assimilation is just like a PC term for whitewashing. And um, I think like with any influx of immigration to the United States, um, there's always been a phase of whitewashing where, you know, culturally you kind of have to reject your own culture um, in hopes of economic prosperity um, and fitting in and like this mimicry of whiteness. Um, And, and, the construction of the model minority really had less to do with um, the success of Asians. And it had more to do with highlighting the perceived failure of African-Americans and pushing Mm -hmm. this American dream and meritocracy that, you know, the the material conditions of oppressed people was their own individual doing. And look at this class of people who had immigrated, who, um, who'd come to America and was able to succeed. Like it's your own fault. And, um, W.E.B. Du Bois describes um, in The Psychological Wage of Whiteness, um, essentially 
talking about the status of privilege is bound to the categorization of being non-Black. So that's kind of how um, the model minority is intertwined with anti-Blackness. And um, I think racism within America is predicated on anti-Blackness. And you see how um, the the construction of model minority deflects blame from the capitalist institutions of the ruling class. It deflects from those institutions being the cause, the root cause, and blames it on um, black and brown people and poor white people for that matter. Yeah, I think like speaking about like racial stereotyping, and specifically racial stereotyping of Asians, I actually took a psychology seminar in college that was called like the psychology of group life and for the final paper we basically had to write any research paper about like social groups in society and i was like all right let me just take this and write about being asian because that's what i know um so i opened up that paper with this incident where so basically on October 29th, 1996, there was a grand jury in San Francisco that indicted a Chinese man, Mark Shufei Chin, for felony murder, attempted robbery, and related firearm allegations. And he was later sentenced to 19 years to life in state prison. Um, and it was a jury trial, and the foreperson on that jury was a white architectural consultant for the United States Supreme Court who held a master's degree. And even though that was the case, and this case was like taking place in San Francisco, seven of the 19 jurors on that panel identified as Asian American. But almost in almost every instance, an Asian American person was never chosen as the foreperson of a grand jury, despite comprising 17.4% of grand juries uh, between 1960 and 1996. And so the chance of that exclusion happening by chance was 0.0000035%. So it's clearly like some sort of systemic exclusion. So like why were Chinese or Asian people excluded from being the four persons for juries? Um, there were some records that were revealed about the kind of person that the San Francisco uh, court systems were looking for when they were looking for four persons they said that that position called for somebody with quote unquote administrative abilities, leadership and people skills, a hearty handshake sort of guy. And another courtroom official wanted somebody who could quote unquote, get along with other people, conduct a meeting and act to make sure the grand jury was doing what, is, what it was supposed to be doing. So I think that Asian Americans were excluded from that position, either like implicitly or systemically can be traced to perceptions of Asian Americans that date back to the 19th century in like ways that we were talking about before where it's like they will do work but they like will never take leadership positions because they're like meek or like too like I don't know like soft-spoken to like I guess dominate a sort of uh leadership role so and I think that kind of take, t takes form to this day in the model minority myth uh as well yeah, I think also thinking specifically about like physical violence towards Asian Americans. Um, I also just wanted to talk briefly about the murder of Vincent Chin in 1982. Um, so this was a really horrifying case. He was 27 years old. He was out celebrating at his bachelor party and these two white auto workers attacked him with a baseball bat and killed him. 
Um, and during the attack, they said that it was because they blamed him for being out of work because at the time it was widely perceived that the Japanese auto industry doing well was part of why the US auto industry was failing. Um, Vincent Chin was actually Chinese American, not Japanese American, but I think this is a pattern we see continuing to today where racists really don't care that much about who they're attacking. They care more about being violent towards someone that they perceive as being a good target of that violence. Yeah, I was, I was also thinking about that and how I think racism and race specifically are so external. Like because it's something that is constructed, it's also like phenotypic in nature. So when attacks like this happen, it's not necessarily about whether somebody is of an actual, of a certain ethnicity. It's about whether somebody can feasibly be perceived as someone of that ethnicity. I think that we can see that in the in the recent attacks that have happened as well. It's not like just Chinese people who have been attacked, but it's happening because the victims have the ability to be read just from a very external standpoint as Chinese. Right, exactly. Um, so obviously, like, this was just an incredibly horrifying attack. And ultimately, the two white men who attacked Vincent Chin got just three years of probation. Neither of them ever served a day in jail, even though they killed someone. Um, and so this incident and the backlash to this really light sentence that these guys got is one of the major events that kicked off kind of the modern Asian American civil rights movement. Um, and we've talked a lot on this show about how it's really important to fight for abolition and not use the prison industrial complex to solve our problems, um, which I think we're going to talk more about in just a little bit. But I do think it's also important to note how much of the modern Asian American rights movement comes out of this real racism and just lack of care for what was happening to Asian folks in the US um, and just how this is really baked into US law and policy. Um, and people were trying to fight back against the fact that nothing was being done about violence against Asian Americans, um, specifically hate violence. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to note that incident because I think it's really relevant to some of what we're seeing today as well. Definitely, definitely. I think speaking about the like, different ethnicities within being Asian American in general. Like personally, I've always found the term Asian American to be a little bit non-descriptive. I think when I use it from my own personal experience, I'm talking about being Chinese American. But like, if you look at, think about the term itself, like Asian American, it's like, it's like the largest continent on earth. Like, I don't really know, like it could be referring to anyone um, on that continent. But I think something that I've also noticed, like, in my experience in college talking about being Asian American, I think a lot of the most dominant voices that come to the forefront still are often, I would say like East Asian or like light-skinned Asian voices. Um, and I think Janet also wants to talk about that as well, just like the inter-ethnic racism between Asian groups and like who the term Asian American is describing and who does it leave out. Yeah, um, for sure. It's, definitely like the homogenizing of Asian American really leaves out the historical, the historical materialism of, um, you know, various ethnic groups, and the antagonisms among those Asian mm -hmm. ethnic groups. And one of the contemporary examples of kind of the uh, inter-ethnic antagonisms, I guess, so to speak, um, was is brought up in Ali Wong's Baby Cobra stand-up. Um, she's this <laughs> Asian um, uh, 
comic essentially who's who's very much in the mainstream and she she talked about fancy Asians versus jungle Asians and it it brings to uh the forefront the the um kind of colorism and and colonialism within um Asia itself because you know Japan had um colonized China and also Vietnam. And so she talks about how she's Chinese and also Vietnamese and her Chinese side is fancy Asian and her Vietnamese side is, you know, jungle Asian and how uh, her husband and her can really talk about, can really like relate to being half fancy Asian and half jungle Asian because I believe he's half Filipino and half Japanese. Um, And so it's it's like representing this like there really is uh f- inter-ethnic antagonisms mm-hmm. with within the historical uh past between asian people so I, yeah as far as like asian american as a term i really feel like it leaves out a lot and that still like is shown in today as far as how Asians relate to one another. Um, For instance, there was this Korean ex-classmate of I who I like met up in DC and uh, she's a Korean woman and we were just like hanging out, talking, like whatever. And she was like explaining to me that among Korean uh, women, they had this perception of Asian women as loose And that was just like really like just shocking to me, but it really shows how that there is antagonisms between Mm. these groups and there's this hierarchy. And um, I think it's like part of whiteness and how colorism is is really like permeating within Asian culture. Mm. Um, In Vietnam today, there's um, like as far as like economic opportunity I I guess a lot of Vietnamese women who are not in good economic standing get married off to Korean men and then become essentially the house workers and like this domestic worker for the family of Korean men so it's really it really shows like these economic disparities um, and how uh, racism and ethnocentrism is really born of like these class divisions and when we talk about Asian American it also extends to South Asia in um like and that includes India Bangladesh Pakistan and that as well and you know I've done some research on like as far as like whiteness literally like physically whiteness and how that relates to economic capital Um, and cultural capital, a lot of like these beauty markets that basically sells products to dark skin ethnic groups Mm -hmm. within these, these countries, whether it be even like, you know, Vietnam, there's like various ethnic groups within these countries, various ethnic groups within India, Pakistan, and like, basically utilizing beauty markets in order to become more white, because Mm -hmm. it translates to financial capital essentially getting hired at a job because you are more light skin presenting yeah well I was just thinking when I was young I remember my mom telling me she was like oh the reason why in China they prefer people to have light skin 
is because like if you were like working in the field doing like physical labor under the sun you would get darker whereas like the aristocracy exactly sitting inside all the time and they would be like white skinned and that was desired yeah yeah so there is like a class-based element to it yeah it's obviously I mean this isn't my experience at all as a white person but my best friend from college is um Chinese and she would talk about how like over the summer she would want to get tan because a lot of her friends um in college were white and that she could tan easily and that was desirable mm-hmm. but then after she did that she always regretted it because she would have to go home and her parents would like get really upset with her oh, no. for getting tan yeah um anyway that was i mean it's it's a small thing but it's also i think really representative of um this sort of double bind that mm-hmm. um um American culture places non-white people in mm-hmm. um, and I just wanted to add from a historical perspective like Janet mentioned there's this huge history of colonization within Asia like within the colon- the um, continent that a lot of people in America just don't know that much about I think people in general are probably aware of like the Japanese colonization of Manchuria um, which was part of China in the 1930s and that prefigured World War II as we talk about it I think I've said on this podcast that if we had like a more Pacific than Atlantic oriented view we'd probably date the outbreak of World War II to 1931 but because we're focused on the European theater we don't Um, and Japan also colonized much of Korea in the 20th century Um, and I just wanted to like briefly touch on that because I think it it relates to what Janet and Bianca were talking about with some of like both gender and class because um, Japan was forced to relinquish control of Korea after World War II and then America bifurcated it into North and South Korea and caused the Korean War and anyway that's a story for another day but there's still a lot of bad blood between South Korea and Japan to this day as nations um, because of the the history of comfort women, which is what the Japanese government euphemistically called Korean women who were literally conscripted into sexual slavery for Japanese soldiers during the war um, and compensation cases for people who were forced into these positions is still in 2021 an ongoing issue in in Japanese courts. So I think that, I mean, just to add to what everybody's been saying, that the idea of Asia as a monolith, where when over a third of the, the world's population lives on that continent, is like just absolutely a wild concept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think... Next, we wanted to bring things back into like a U.S. American context. And I think I wanted to talk a little bit about specifically like anti-Blackness within Asian communities and how there's kind of been more discussion surrounding that after the recent attacks. I I think like the thing that comes to mind the most for a lot of people when they think about um, Asian people being anti-Black is the Latasha Harlan's case. And I know... um, Janet wants to talk a lot of, or a little bit, maybe a lot, maybe both about that too. <laughs> yeah, no, the um, Latasha Harlan's case was an interesting one. Um, and if for all those who aren't um, aware of what happened in the 90s, Latasha Harlan's was a 15-year-old Black um, girl who had um, c- gone to this um corner store at a a Korean owned corner store, um, I believe to buy um, orange soda or orange juice. And she um, was being accused by the, the shop owner, this Korean woman Mm -hmm. um, 
of of stealing essentially and there was a there was a disagreement <laughs> to put it in light terms there was an argument that pursued and it basically resulted in her getting shot point blank by the store owner and it in the leading weeks the Rodney King Rodney King was also assaulted by um by the the police and that kind of came to a head and resulted in the LA riots and kind of segueing it to kind of the historical uh events that led up to kind of this like antagonism between the Korean merchant class and also um, the black community. Um, so Koreans immigrated to the United States because there was a disproportionate amount of educated and qualified professionals seeking employment opportunities in Korea at the time. And so in hopes of better opportunities, they came to America in order to kind of for better economic opportunities, but because America is really terrible at translating and equating foreign education um, to the American system and also the linguistic barrier, a lot of Koreans um, turned to self-employment. So there was this like birth of the Korean merchant class. And as far as immigrants, you know, they were um, setting up shop within these black communities. And so resultingly um, there was this kind of distrust for the with, within the black community for the Korean merchant class that came out of the uh, Latasha Harling's um, incident and event. And it even, you know, reverberates today. Um, there's this a more obscure, uh, more obscure story within the beauty supply industry that, is a continuation, I would say, of what happened to Latasha Harlings. The beauty industry is something that uh, is an industry that is really dominated by um, the Korean merchant class, and they have consequently like been able to monopolize the supply chain of the supply industry, which is the customers are largely black Americans. And so they've been excluded from being able to own their own stores because the K Korean merchant class has been able to monopolize mm. on it. And so um, in addition to that, you know, there's this like feeling of surveillance because, you know, the Koreans are the overseer and they're the ones that own these stores. And because of like linguistic barriers, there's like this this racial antagonism between the two and so I think there's this like infighting within the the immigrant Asian immigrants and also the black community that is a consequence of neoliberal um, economics that has like forced the lower the level the economic low levels of society to you know basically focus on like these racial antagonisms instead of realizing that, you know, this is born out of the ruling class and capitalist like um, regimes in order to um, deflect from the larger institutional um, deprivations. Yeah, I think, well, 
the thing that I just thought of as you were speaking, do you remember like over the summer, there was a lot of controversy because there was a picture of a black woman wearing chopsticks in her hair. And a lot of Asians got extremely angry about it because they were like, that is a cultural appropriation of like our culture. And one of the main points that black people were bringing up in response to this was like the beauty supply chains where we are getting these products from are like owned by Asian people. They are literally selling these products to us. It's like, like the competing interest between like, like the merchants selling like beauty products to black people and then later getting infuriated when they are using the beauty products that they're being sold. It's just, I don't know. Like I remember like hearing so many different takes from so many different like Asian people about like whether it was cultural appropriation or not. And like, I think I just made me think of that a little yeah. bit as well. Like that was like a huge mess. Um, but going back to the Latasha Harlan's case, a lot of people immediately think of it as like an East Asian person committing a racist attack on a black person. And it definitely is like undeniably so. But I also want to sort of emphasize how like when a lot of people, especially white people tell this narrative, what they leave out is often the broader cultural context. And what I'm referring to here is like the patterns of gentrification that white people enacted and the migration patterns among black Americans and Korean immigrants that led to this murder. So like in many other instances of gentrification, income was allocated to certain LA neighborhoods, making them more attractive to white people, pushing out the black people who used to live there. And then both new and old immigrants from Korea were also pushed out. Um, so it led to all these different class tensions. And the media also played a huge role in this as well because they were constantly reporting on those tensions that existed between Black and Korean communities without addressing the role that whiteness and wealth played in exacerbating those tensions. So that media reporting also legitimized harmful stereotypes of both groups. So of Black people as being dangerous, of Koreans as being greedy and cutthroat business owners. And basically it seemed like a way for white people to deflect blame from themselves and basically say, oh, that's not our problem. That's between Black people and Korean people. Um, so I think it's also really important to like talk about like the like how whiteness was the common enemy here that led to this attack, which was also racist on its face. Uh, this is not to say that Asian communities are not guilty of being anti-Black, because I do think that is something that we do need to work through. My feeling is that a lot of white people won't call out Asians for being anti-Black because they either don't think it's their place to or because it's not their issue, because it's for once it's not them being accused of being anti-Black. So they're kind of staying silent on this. But I think that's kind of why we as Asian people need to do it ourselves and agitate, and agitate against that anti-Blackness. So that means things like pushing back against the model minority myth. And it means understanding how, at least for me and other non-Black East Asians, our proximity to whiteness does afford us privilege. And it means not centering our own oppression when it comes to talking about Black oppression. By that, I mean not equating the Asian American experience with being Black in America. I've seen a lot of Asians who attempt to like build solidarity with Black communities by being like, oh, I understand your oppression because I am also oppressed without realizing that the racial and economic motivations for importing and commodifying Black people as slaves is not at all comparable to the kind of labor that stems from industrialization that many Asian people eventually did when they immigrated here. So the dynamics are completely different and the legacies of those events are also completely different. So I think it's kind of harmful actually to equate the kind of oppression-based experiences that 
both groups have. Um, I also want to highlight again, as Janet was saying earlier, how buying into the model minority myth is also anti-Black because it's like a stereotype foisted upon Asians by white people so that white people can weaponize in their Amer weaponize us in their American dream fantasies. It's just like pull yourself up by the bootstraps bullshit that ignores centuries of enslavement and racist policies. I mean, I also think that wealthy power wielding often light-skinned East Asians will often buy into the model minority myth themselves in an attempt to uh, justify the system that they exist in. So that, like they'll attempt to justify their position um, by being like, oh, I worked hard to get here. Everybody should just work hard. Like that is how you like essentially rise to the top of society basically. I think one of the most infamous examples that I cannot get out of my head is the Yale law professor, Amy Chua, literally writing a book about this where she argued that three personality traits, I think they were like a superiority complex or like having good impulse control and like uh, feeling like fundamentally insecure. She was like, those are the three personality traits that explain why certain groups of people she included like a, uh, I think like Chinese people, she included like Jewish people as like, those were the reasons why those groups of people ended up being wealthy in the US. Like terrible, like I just can't believe this book got published. So like relinquishing the belief that any, any belief that you have in the validity of the model minority myth is another way to understand your positionality as an Asian person living in the US. Can I just ask a question here, Bianca? Mm -hmm. Since you've read the book, um, what is the personality trait that allows somebody to send their daughter to work with Brett Kavanaugh? <laughs> Just out of curiosity. Or did, was that I'm not covered? Free. Okay, cool. Great. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was just like, the one time I literally saw her, I was behind her in line at a coffee shop in New Haven. I was literally about to like say hi, but then ask her so many questions about the book <laughs> and also battle him with a tiger mother which was like the book that kind of like, I think was like her catalyst to mainstream fame basically. Um, interesting character. Uh, I also want to highlight here that I've been seeing a lot of discussion about anti-blackness within Asian communities mm -hmm. that I think implicitly or not kind of treat being anti-black as being endemic to those Asian communities. Like I've seen people say like, oh, like, you know, in their home countries, they probably never encountered Black people. So that's why, like, they don't really know how to, like, discuss Blackness as an issue. I don't know. I think that's sort of like a fatalist attitude that treats anti-Blackness as this intractable feature, which it's not. You just, like, have to constantly work against it. So I kind of wanted to, like, caution against those kinds of attitudes as well. Yeah. And I, I think those attitudes are also born of again, anti-communism. And as far as like the Asian, the Vietnamese community, the older Vietnamese community that um, came and immigrated to the United States were usually Southern aligned. Um, and within the Vietnamese community, the media that, they, that you know, is linguistically um, translated and available to um, the older Vietnamese community that doesn't usually that are not able to engage with English, uh, the larger English um, media. Um, it portrays the Black Lives Matters movement as Marxist. And with 
historically, like post Vietnam War, there the people who sought like refugee status and immigration to the United States were Southern aligned government, and they were like the petty bourgeois reactionaries, and they sought to essentially come to America in order to specifically escape. They had this fear of Black Lives Matter movement as like a Marxist group, and um, is related to this like historical proximity to the Vietnam War. So like associating Black Lives Matter with Marxism had to do with their perception of like escaping communism and also their contempt and distrust for China in contemporary terms as a communist state aligns with like the more conservative political positions. Um, And, you know, anti-austerity, and more neoliberal. And uh, uh, one of the incidents that came about posts during the Black Lives Matter movement that like, honestly, like was interesting to me was this newer generation of Vietnamese Americans who were more politically engaged. Um, There was this Vietnamese man who had posted this Black Lives Matter. um, What are those things called? Those... um, uh billboards billboards yeah billboards (laughs) yeah he had posted this like black lives matter billboard and like he had translated black lives matter into vietnamese in houston which is like one of the largest like Mm -hmm. vietnamese like immigration um immigrant like homes for vietnamese immigrants um and he had received like death threats from the vietnamese community and um And it was painted as like Marxist and terrible. And like, if you're American, you cannot support Black Lives Matter because it's communist in nature. So it's, yeah. So it's, it's interesting to relate these um, anti-Blackness within that permeates within the Asian Vietnamese Um, community at large as their like fear of Marxism, their fear of communism Mm -hmm. and how that like really relates to how they see their lack of solidarity towards Mm -hmm. the Black Lives Matter. But I think that like, as far as the context of like newer generations who are, who are more politically engaged and as like, you know, class struggle becomes more intense, they're able to you know, see the class cohesion among um, Asian community and also the Black Lives Matter um, protests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think we wanted to also talk about specifically the attacks that have been happening and how that relates to Black Lives Matter, how it relates to abolition um, and not pro-cop behavior. And I think Julia had some thoughts about it and also reporting that they did about it. Yeah, so I guess I just wanted to give kind of an overview for folks who maybe like haven't followed everything that's been going on. So ever since the first reports of COVID-19 being in the U.S. um, and just existing in general, we've seen this big spike in racist rhetoric and anti-Asian violence. Um, Since that time, there have been nearly 3,000 incidents of anti-Asian hate violence And roughly a third of those happened just in the first month that it was known COVID was in the U.S., so between March and April 2020. 
Um, and this is according to Stop AAPI Hate, which is a community resource that was created to track these attacks. Um, many of these incidents have specifically targeted elderly Asian Americans, which is particularly horrifying. Just last month, an 84-year-old man named Vicha Ratanapakti was killed in San Francisco in what appears to be a racially motivated attack. Um, so I think it's important to call out, especially since our earlier conversation on how the term Asian American is pretty broad and vague, that a lot of this violence has specifically targeted East Asian and Southeast Asian folks um, and people mm -hmm. who are or are perceived to be Chinese Americans specifically. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have a lot of mixed feelings about the responses I've been seeing to these attacks because, yes, of course, they're tragic and they make me worry about the racism, xenophobia, sinophobia that motivated them. I mean, I feel very honestly worried for my own parents and grandparents who live in a predominantly white suburb, especially since their outward appearance. I mean, like my grandparents don't speak any English at all. My parents speak English that's accented by having learned Mandarin first. Um, I think that by virtue, like by virtue of that, it makes them seem less assimilated and more foreign and therefore more susceptible to being attacked. I think that's also part of the reason why elderly people are being attacked as well, because like, I think for me as somebody who like was born here and has been like Americanized, so to speak, because I like appear to be more American, I think it's like for people who are very xenophobic, they perceive me as less of a threat. Um, than my parents or grandparents, for example, or people who might have immigrated here later on in life. Um, but at the same time, I am also very disappointed by a lot of the calls I've seen by other Asian people for more policing and jailing for the perpetrators of these attacks. Uh, somebody I follow on Twitter, I think they purposefully keep a low profile or an anonymous account, but I love their tweets a lot. It's, their at is at baritone paths. I don't know their name or anything about them, but uh, they made a point that like mainstream Asian American advocacy efforts are often limited in their scope because they're mainly or only concerned with not being a target and not dismantling oppressive structures. And I thought that was a really astute point. And it's something I think I can understand a little bit because I think like centuries of being subjugated by white people would make not being a target a very relevant concern. I think there's also some sort of element of ethnic pride here. A lot of older generations of Asians, I think want justice in any way possible. And they understand that to be like arresting, bringing charges against somebody, putting them in jail for um, something that they did wrong. And so in response to other often younger Asians invoking more abolitionist responses to these attacks, they're like, why aren't you sticking up for your own community? Why are you so self-hating? Like, why aren't you calling for like justice to be served? And it's like, I don't hate being Asian. A lot of like, I don't think many young Asian American people hate being Asian American. What we hate is the upholding of the carceral state. So just like some examples that I've seen, there was a GoFundMe that raised over $80,000 for Oakland's Chinatown to put up their own private armed guard force, like on top of the police forces that are already there. And I'm like that $80,000 could go to like so many other like abolitionist resources. Um, and another example was like, after this influx of attacks, a lot of East Asian celebrities took to social media to speak out against them in what I would call pretty pro-cop ways, 
So Daniel Day Kim and Daniel Wu, who are both actors, offered a $25,000 reward for anybody who could provide information that would lead to the arrest of a person who attacked a 91-year-old man in San Francisco's Chinatown. And the man who was arrested for that attack was a 28-year-old Black man. And so I think it's like misguarded and harmful to be offering this huge monetary reward to invoke the use of the criminal justice system in this way. Instead, it would be more useful to highlight the ways that imprisonment only serves to uphold white supremacy, which would not benefit any non-white communities. Yeah, I think this is super important to hit home, just like there are so many flaws with responses to hate violence of all types that rely on police and prisons. Um, We know that increased policing harms communities of color, particularly black and brown communities in so many ways. Um, But not only that, I just think it's really important to say, like so many problems we try to solve with police and prisons, hate crime legislation does not work to reduce hate violence. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been tons of studies on this showing that passing hate crime laws does nothing to reduce the number of hate crimes that occur. The only thing it does is increase the prison population as people get longer sentences for Mm -hmm. those crimes. Um, And like everything else in the U.S. legal system, these longer sentences disproportionately impact Black and brown folks rather than white men who might be the people we're imagining we're passing these laws to protect ourselves against. Um, And we've talked about this on the podcast before, so I won't go too in-depth here, but I do think it bears repeating that there's no evidence jail time prevents people from committing further acts of violence either. Um, In many cases, people are more likely to commit further violence once they've entered the criminal punishment system. So, you know, just using hate crime legislation is not an effective way to respond to these attacks. Um, And it has all these other harmful consequences as well. So we're coming up on time, but we have a couple more things to talk about. And now is when I enter my favorite stage mom mode for Janet. Um, (laughs) As she mentioned in her intro, is an artist and has been working on a multimedia project um, that like touches on a lot of these topics. So I thought it would be interesting if you wanted to tell people about that and also um, like read some of the writings that go along with it, which I've had the pleasure of hearing over FaceTime. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Thank you, mom. (laughs) Um, yeah, so as far as like my artistic um, endeavors currently, it, it, it's really been tied to like the political experiences that I've had. And so I'm working on a retrospective art show called See Me Now, Wei Hung Thoi Dai. Um, and that translates the latter half to This Is My Home Town. Um, it seeks to bring to the public my experience as a Vietnamese American woman and unfolds like how my art making process um, relates to exposing the impact of white supremacy, patriarchy and capitalism and the personal effects that it has had and allow my audience to witness the politicization of my body. And the name of the show, See Me Now, is a call that responds to the invisibility that Asian Americans in particular experience outside of tokenization. Um, and the latter half of the title, Wei Hung Doi Dai, draws attention to the linguistic dimension that shapes America's perception of my si- my citizenship as second class and alien despite being born here. Um, and so to assert this is my hometown in Vietnamese is, is purposely an act of defiance and of the notion that speaking any language other than English makes one a foreigner or an American. 
And so um, in addition to that, the show takes on this oppositional stance that that intends to like revise this exclusion by printing an untold American history over the cover page of Encyclopedia Britannica um, and publishing my narrative onto this you know, ubiquitous symbol of intellectual reference that I say is established by white settler colonialists is an act of opposition, oppositional vandalism. And so I can share a few of the narratives that I've written as a part of this show to kind of um, unveil these narratives that isn't really portrayed within the mainstream. And it all relates to my body. And I would say it's um, on a writing style is in influenced by Ta-Nehisi Coates and as he relates the body as this central figure of um, telling these narratives. Um, Philadelphia Vietnamese Alliance Church, 2005. They journeyed across the states to shepherd our eternal fate. Blonde, blue-eyed, and sanctimonious, she was there to teach me lessons. She propagandized my body, a body for some, a mere object for corrupt boys with helpless feasting eyes. She gave me an oversized t-shirt to wear over my body and its whiteness washed over me. In that moment, I did not feel as if my body belonged to me. So this is like this narrative kind of like talks about whiteness and how it connects to, you know, white uh, settler colonialism and how this religious missionary work and how that relates to uh, this justification for colonialization and imperialism and, and civilizing of, um, of Asian Americans um, and how that even extends to today. Another narrative I wrote was Cedarbrook Middle School 2005. A dispute broke out between him and I. He took out his shoe to expose the inner tongue. Look, your grandmother, grandma, made my shoes. Rage took hold of my body. I could feel the heat of blood pumping through my face. I catapulted an apple at his head. An act of resistance paid for at an inflated price, an in-school suspension. I learned the institution of education was in the business of casting my body as second class. So this like relates to how the education system is ill prepared to really like deal with these racial antagonisms and white supremacy is really baked into our education system. Um, and within the same year, <laughs> um, I wrote this other narrative. Um, I smelled of menthol perspiring from my pores the blood red circles of varying circumferences on my black, on my back had not fully faded. As my skin had yet to fully heal, another would split open. A resentful white girl whom I considered a friend at the time gossiped that my bungwai had sucked the sickness out of me. A popular Korean schoolgirl echoed the blather and chatter. When I opposed this mockery, I received instant messages from her henchmen. Your face is flat. It looks like it was steamrolled. They labeled my body savage. Um, so yeah, it's this is like tying back to this uncivilized perception of Asians and their cultural practice. And this last narrative I'll read um, is about like 
linguistic and alien and the foreigner perception of Asian Americans as not really American. Philadelphia Airport, 2016. As I stood on the SEPTA platform, I immediately recognized the mother of a childhood friend. Hi, Sydney, I called out. We practiced the courteous chit-chat. She asked if I'd like to share her company on the train. I complied and sat by. She went on to tell me, when I first didn't recognize you, I wasn't sure if you spoke English. Unequivocally comfortable in her skin, she was incapable of seeing my rage. That moment, I realized it did not matter how long I spent in the company of white liberals. My body would always be alien. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's awesome. I feel like we should, like, snap or something. Yeah. Oh, for real. Thanks, guys. Um, So we wanted to wrap up by talking a little bit about ways to get involved with these issues. Um, We've talked a lot about the flaws with using police and prisons to combat hate violence. So I just wanted to share some Asian American groups and individuals that folks can support who are specifically working on anti-carceral responses to hate violence. Um, There's the Asian Asian Prisoner Support Committee, um, which supports Asian people who are incarcerated, and the Asian Law Caucus, which runs campaigns like the Stand with Nanhui campaign. These groups draw on the model of Black-led abolitionist groups like Survived and Punished to advocate for the release from prison of criminalized Asian American survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Um, There's also the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence, which is a group that was initially formed in response to the murder of Vincent Chin that developed an anti-carceral response framework to these violent incidents that started increasing in the 1980s. Um, And there's also DRUM, Desi's Rising Up and Moving, which is a group that works for the civil rights and labor rights of primarily low-income South Asian folks. Um, And finally, Stop AAPI Hate, which is the group I referenced earlier that's been monitoring hate violence. Um, I think this type of community-led information sharing is a really important alternative Mm -hmm. to relying on like police reports and official accounts of hate violence. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think like it is important to highlight how um, policing has been this solve all perception um, of how we we solve our social problems. And within this like stage of late capitalism, we've seen the consequences of, you know, decades of austerity that has practically defunded most public services and has, you know, turned to policing and the carceral state to solve all of our social problems. And though it may seem like an unglamorous solution, but I think like a a large part of the solution is to help people to restore these historic, the historical memory. Cause I think like, as far as like the American historical memory, it's so abbreviated, it's so Mm -hmm. simplified, it's so whitewashed and in raising the people's consciousness, we can help to undo like the US empire's propaganda. Yeah, definitely. I think more on like an individual standpoint, I think it's definitely worth talking to your, if you're Asian American and you're listening to this, I think it's definitely good to like talk to your lib or pro cop Asian friends about why their stances are misguided and need updating. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just very frustrated by seeing a lot of lib Asian takes online, but I think it's like such an important conversation to have. (laughs) Yeah, totally. 
Um, and then just a few individuals whose work I wanna specifically shout out because it's been very important in my thinking about abolition and transformative justice more broadly. Um, Victoria Law, she's an amazing writer and researcher on prison abolition and anti-carceral feminism. Um, her new book, Prisons Make Us Safer and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration is coming out this April. Um, also Harsha Walia, an abolitionist and anti-imperialist who wrote the amazing book, Undoing Border Imperialism. Um, and finally, Mia Mingus, who's a writer and transformative justice advocate who runs the blog, Leaving Evidence. Um, for Patreon subscribers, you might remember that we read her piece, How to Give a Genuine Apology in our abolitionist reading group, which is still the best thing I've ever read that actually explains how to give a good apology mm -hmm. when you've caused harm. Cool. I feel like we covered so much on this episode. It was very informationally dense. Um, I'm very thankful to have had Janet on. So thank you, Janet, for like thank sharing you. your experiences, sharing your work with us. Yeah. So, yeah. So, sorry for the dog barking. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> no worries. Cool. Well, yeah. Hey. Thanks for joining. Yeah. yeah. Thank you guys for having me. For sure. Thank you. All right. Well, that was our episode. Thanks for listening. Um, glad Janet could share all of her hot takes with all of you. Um, I feel like we've been having like regular FaceTimes over quarantine. I feel like I've had a lot of conversations about this. So I'm like, yeah, hmm. that was great. And yeah, very information dense. So hopefully like we gave enough resources. And also we can link to Janet's website because the show she was talking about will have like a, an online exhibit, um, mm -hmm. I think next summer. So yeah, you can give us your money on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at season of the bee. You can go to our website, season of the bee.com. Yep, yes. That's the one. <laughs> but you can also Google it anyway. So don't even worry. Um, and you can email us at season of the bee at gmail.com. And yeah, I think that's everything. Except right. that I love you all. Love you. Aww, love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Season of the Bitch.